0: Welcome to Sunday School Refuge Church. We are excited to start a new series about contending for the faith. This week we're going to be talking about unwavering faith, or faith that cannot be moved. And before we begin talking about this fight that we're going to need our faith for, I want you to pray with me that God would move on our hearts and minds as we study His Word today. Lord, we thank You so much for the opportunity to dive deeper into Your Word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the faith that you've given us, oh God, and I pray that we would feed that, that it would grow in our lives, that you would give us greater faith, Lord, for the fight that is ahead. We love, and we thank you, we give you all the praise and glory that we continue to walk in your word and you continue to teach us. Thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, unwavering faith or faith that cannot be moved is something that we have to contend for. We have to contend for the faith. That means that we struggle, we resist, we compete for the faith. We have to be committed. Committed, that's something we talked about a couple months ago, our commitment and how we can be committed. And we have to have that for the Word of God. And that results in a pure heart, a clean conscience, and sincere faith a pure heart, a clean conscience, and sincere faith. Those are things that we are working towards that we need. We know that we need a, a pure heart, a clean heart to see, to be a part of the kingdom of God, and to be in his presence. And we want that, and we want that sincere faith that this lesson is going to teach us about today. Our focus scripture is 1 Timothy 1.5. In the King James Version, it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, And of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That scripture in the New International Version reads like this The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Today we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. Now, this is uh, the man that was the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus Christ for the Lord. John, like a salmon swimming upstream in the cold waters of the Northwest, he was not afraid to go against the culture of his day. He had the spirit of Elijah. He stood for righteousness when the political leaders were wicked and hostile to a righteous message. Now, if you're listening to this lesson in uh, real time or the week that we've uploaded it, I I just want to say that this is the lesson that was in our curriculum for this week. We haven't changed it, we haven't manipulated it, and we haven't picked a lesson to go along with our current events. But I know that God is in control and that even when this curriculum was being written and the day that it would be taught, he knew what would be going on in our world. And so I want to say that again. John stood for righteousness, When the leaders, the world leaders, the political and religious leaders were wicked and hostile, he continued to teach a message of righteousness. Now, he started preaching in the wilderness, and he didn't preach in a church or in a synagogue, but he preached in the desert beside rivers. He preached in the beating sun. He probably preached in the rain and in the wind. And his message was repent. That is what he preached, repent. With clarity and boldness, he preached this message that most people probably wouldn't be attracted to, and yet he drew large crowds with his message of repentance. John's preaching and his influence, it got the attention of King Herod, and before long he was testifying in front of the king. And some may have um, watered down the message at this point when they're approaching the king when they're they're speaking um, in this um, place of honor or a place before the king you might some might have watered down the message but John did not. He was unwavering in his faith in what he knew to be true even as he stood before the king and if you want you can read that account in mark chapter six verses 14 through 29 John had the moral authority to declare to the king that he was not living right John could tell the king you're not living right and it was because John was living right that he could say it and not waver in what he was saying he was able to declare um, the tell the king what sin he was living in and when you read that account, you realize he was talking to the king about how he was living with his brother's wife and telling him that this was sin. And John was able to say this clearly. He was able to say it boldly because in John's life, he, he was living righteously and there wasn't that sin. So King Herod respected John for this. And he observed that John was a just and holy man. And the king even admired John. When he gave him audience, the preaching of John drew the admiration of some and it drew the anger or the wrath of others. But John did not let the, the, this, any fear. He didn't let people's opinions determine his message. The fear of imprisonment and death. It didn't cause him to falter or to be quiet in what he believed. He stood strong. He was an example to all of us, even today that unwavering faith in the middle of threats and persecution is a testimony to the truth that we hold dear. Jesus himself held up John as an example to all of us that if we are to be strong in our faith, regardless of circumstance, we will declare with our lifestyle the moral sovereignty of our message. John preached the same gospel in the wilderness that he did in the palace. The steadfastness of his preaching awoke the people to the justice of God. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John in Luke chapter 7, verse 28 through 29, and he said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And the Bible tells us that at Jesus' words about John, all the people, even the tax collectors, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. John's... Um, His unwavering faith and his his desire to stand and be bold and his action in doing that, it prepared the way of the Lord. That was John's purpose in life. And if he had wavered, he would not have been able to fulfill his purpose in preparing the way for Jesus to come. The Old Testament, it tells us the story of Elijah who also had the opportunity and mandate to stand for righteousness in the face of wickedness in high places. When Elijah became weary in his battle, God visited him in a lonely place and encouraged him, reminding him that he was not alone. Sometimes it's easy to become weary in well-doing because doing right in the midst of constant wrongdoing can be exhausting to our human spirit. But God will come and refresh us in our weariness. God gave Elijah the assignment to find someone to mentor. And this person, Elisha, helped to shoulder Elijah's load. So the person that he was teaching, the person that God told him to, to pour into and to teach and to show the, what was right and what to do, that person His student became someone that helped to shoulder his load and his burden. If we stand strong, God will put others in our path to bring strength to us. God knows we're human, and we not only need spiritual encouragement, but sometimes we need human encouragement. And he gives us camaraderie through the church, through friends and family to help give us a sense of hope and purpose and peace. Both John and Elijah stood for righteousness, despite political pressure to compromise. Kind of sounds um sounds like that could be present day, that there is political pressure, that there is pressure from leadership and from uh, people that in in this world that we might have to be submitted to. There is p- pressure to not live or stand for righteousness, and yet that is what these men did. The pressure of our secular society upon righteousness is any and anything that represents righteousness, it's not something new. What we face today in a world that would like us to be quiet about what the Bible says is right, about righteousness, that pressure is not something that's new. A wicked king or queen or wicked political leaders. It's not a recent phenomenon, but history is littered with people that were in charge that put pressure on the people of God. We may experience pressure from civil leaders, from employers, or even family members to compromise our faith, but God will come to our rescue if we take a stand. We contend for the faith when we refuse to give up or give in the church in Ephesus hated the same things that the Lord hated that's what we find out in Revelation chapter 2 verse 6 it says but this you have and he's talking to the Ephesian church the the and it says this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans at which I also hate So this church was commended because they hated what God hated. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 3, the Lord spoke to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And these churches had been started after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and the establishment of the Jerusalem church. The church in Pergamos was directly targeted because they subscribed to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord said he hated. And we're going to explain that a little bit more. We're going to go go down that path so that we can kind of all understand what it was God said that he hated. Some say that the Nicolaitans were spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch. He had been ordained as a deacon in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. So we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 6 that Nicholas was a proselyte, which tells us he was not born a Jew but had converted from paganism to Judaism. And then Nicholas experiences a second conversion along with many other Jews, and this time it was turning from Judaism to Christianity, accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. From this information, we know these facts. Nicholas came from paganism and probably had deep pagan roots. Unlike the six other deacons who came from a pure Hebrew lineage, his pagan background had probably exposed him to the activities of the occult. And we know that simply through history and through uh, what those that were pagan during that time were doing and what they had filled their lives with and and how they worshipped and what they worshipped and their idolatry. So, the Lord says there in Revelation 2 about the Ephesians church that they hated, they, they detested, or they loathed that Nicolaitan doctrine that had creeped up. Now, here's the question. Should we hate the things that God hates? Well, I think that that scripture in Revelation chapter two, verse six, tells us that we should, because God is commending them or applauding His these people, this church, for hating something that He hated. So, what are things that the Lord hates? I think it's important that we know, because we want that to be our measuring tape. Uh, there's a scripture that comes to mind in Proverbs chapter six and it says uh, a worthless person a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth he winks with his eyes he shuffles his feet he points with his fingers perversity is in his heart he devises evil continually he sows discord therefore his calamity shall come suddenly suddenly he shall be broken without remedy so this is talking about a wicked person and immediately the next scripture says in verse 16 these six things the lord hates so there's there's no division there between that wickedness that was just spoken of into going into these six things so these six things does the lord hate seven are an abomination to him a proud look a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among his brethren. These are things. These are actions. These are habits that God hates. Hebrews 189 says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. God He wants us to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. It helps us to live in a way that's pleasing to him so that he can anoint us, as that scripture says, with the oil of gladness. And I want to have that experience. So what is this doctrine of the Nicolaitans' that God hated and that he commended his church for hating. Let's dig a little deeper into that so we can understand better um, what it was that God was saying that he hated. Ephesus and Pergamos were cities that were given over to the occult and to unbridled pagan worship. In fact, in Pergamos, there was an altar to Zeus, which is uh, the name a name that we all recognize um, from Greek mythology. Now, there was a man, a post-apostolic father named Arrhenius. He was a student of Polycarp, who was an, a disciple of the apostle John. And this man, Arrhenius, wrote extensively about the Nicolaitan doctrine. And it's important to understand how close he was to, these, um, the, to the apostles' time. So this is not far removed. Um, from these biblical writings. And history tells us uh, that Arrhenius connected this Nicolaitan doctrine, this doctrine of compromise, to Nicholas of Antioch that we read about in Acts chapter 6. But more importantly, he describes this doctrine that God hated as an overindulgence of the flesh. In other words, if it feels good, do it. Hippolytus, who was another post-apostolic leader in the early church, wrote, This doctrine was a doctrine of compromise, implying that some saw total separation between Christianity and the practice of paganism as not being essential. From early church records, it seems apparent that Nicholas of Antioch was so immersed in occultism, Judaism, and Christianity that he could stomach it all. So he just mixed them all together. It didn't really matter um, that that there there was no fit there that you could not uh, you couldn't mix them all together. There's there's no way to do that. He found a way to stomach all of it. He was inclusive to everything, and God hated that. He had no problem intermingling these belief systems and various concoctions. He saw no reason why believers could not continue to fellowship with with those that were still immersed in the black magic of the Roman Empire and its countless mystery cults. Occultism was a major force that warred against the early church in ephesus the primary pagan religion was the worship of diana or artemis there were many forms of idolatry in ephesus but this was the primary object, object of occult worship in that city there was a huge temple dedicated to this false god and one of the main ways that the people would worship diana was through immoral sexual acts now remember that, that the, those that were writing these post apostolic fathers that were writing and telling us about this, they said, they said things as though if they, the act of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, if it feels good, do it. And so they would find a way to bring that philosophy into their worship so that they felt better about the fact that they were not living righteously. In the city of Pergamus, there were numerous dark and sinister forms of occultism, causing Pergamos to be one of the most wicked cities in the history of the ancient world. And in both of these cities, believers were persecuted fiercely by adherents of pagan religions. They were forced to contend with paganism on a level beyond all other cities that were dealing with this. It was very difficult for believers to live separated from all the activities of paganism because paganism and its religions were the center of life in these cities. Everything centered around it. It's interesting to me that the devil would, would use this method to make life in one of these cities that, that life would center around the occult or around this pagan worship. I think that there was an understanding there that if I can make make everything in life come back to this pagan worship, they'll never be able to disentangle from it. You know, the truth is that's how our, our walk with Christ, our living for Christ should be. Everything in our lives should be centered. That this should be the center of our lives, the way that we live, the righteousness that we live by, the word of God that we live by and what God loves and what God hates. That should be the center of how we live so that it, is, it's, it becomes difficult for us to disentangle from it. Because there's times when we're weak and there's times when we're struggling, but if our life is completely centered around God and the body of Christ and his word, it becomes hard for us to to disentangle from it in weak times, in times where that seems like it would be the easiest thing to do. But if we're so connected that that can't happen, then that is a strength and not a weakness. During these times Uh, biblical times when the church was still very new, slipping in and out of paganism would have been easy for young or weak believers since most of their family and friends were still, they were still worshiping false gods and they were still doing these pagan religions. A converted Gentile would have found it very hard to stay away from all pagan influence. And it is significant that the deeds and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans are only mentioned in connection with the churches in these two pagan cities. It seems that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, it was all right to have one foot in each world, and a person need not be strict about separation from the world in order to be a Christian. This was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that Jesus hated. It led to a weak version of Christianity that was without power and without conviction a defeated and worldly type of Christianity. The doctrine of compromise can be defeated with unwavering faith in the word of God. The church in Ephesus, it was not perfect. In fact, right before God commends them, he, he does expose some things that were not going right. They're in the book of Revelation. But God does commend them, even in the things that are wrong. He commends them for hating this doctrine of compromise. We live in a day and age when we think it's not spiritual to hate. When we really love God and the word of God, then we will hate the things that are against God and his word. The word of God will convict us and force us to live in a life that is uncompromising. And it will move us out of the middle and force us to break ungodly alliances. Alliances, they are partnerships or close associations. So what is the danger of having ungodly partnerships or ungodly close associations? Well, it's like Proverbs twenty seven seventeen says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That is not just a spiritual truth, but it is a truth either way. You will be sharpened and molded into what you allow to sharpen you or what you allow close to you. The author of this lesson, David Myers, shares this story, and I'm going to read this story to you that he shares. In my senior year of law school, I worked in the public defender's office in our local courthouse. Many times when I interviewed clients, they would say things like, well, I didn't even go into the store. I don't know if Johnny pulled a gun or not. I was sitting in the car. I didn't want to be there. I just thought he was going in the store to get a pack of cigarettes. I hated to be the bearer of bad news, but I would have to explain that just being with the person, doing the wrong behavior is the equivalent of doing the wrong behavior yourself because the law assumes agreement and sees them as co-conspirators. Now, we do not tolerate harm coming to our homes or our bodies. We do not tolerate being treated improperly. We do not tolerate people coming into our homes and stealing our possessions. And we should never tolerate alliances with philosophies that mitigate the truth of God's word and the righteous nature of our God. We cannot allow compromise into our lives. Unwavering faith, it is faith based on a pure heart that's what our scripture told us in first timothy 1 5 it's faith based on a pure heart Now, John the Baptist was bold enough to preach a message of repentance in a time when the people were waiting to hear a message of revolt. They wanted a revolution. The political climate was tense, and the Jews were tired of being under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And their expectation, even the expectation of Jesus' disciples at times, was that the Messiah would come and lead them in a military revolution. But John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, repent. Not just because he was willing to preach an unpopular message of righteousness, but because he was willing to decrease and give place for the ministry of Jesus to increase. He had a pure heart, a pure heart with unwavering faith. Now, a pure heart gives us the internal guidance we need to make hard decisions. Paul taught his student, Timothy, that it was imperative to keep his heart protected so that his faith would stay strong. Jesus declared John to be the greatest of the prophets because John spoke uncompromising words of truth that revealed a pure heart. Unwavering faith is based on a conviction in the core of our being that what we stand strong for is worthy of the necessary sacrifices. So how does Christ-like humility place us in the vast minority in today's culture? Humility is not a very popular stance to take. but we have to be like John and say, you know, he must increase but I must decrease. John is a very interesting character in the Bible in that as soon as the job he was given was done, he he was his life was taken, he was killed. And what an interesting um Almost blessing he received in that. I mean, he had this difficult job of proclaiming the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what he did, very humbly. And it cost him a very great price. Unwavering faith, it is faith based on a pure heart, like John had, and on a clean conscience, like John had. That's why he was able to say the things that would eventually cost him his life. John knew his words before King Herod would be confining to the body, but liberating to the soul. Paul said that he would rather have been present with the Lord and absent from the body, that if it had been his choice, he would have gone from that life right then instead of have to wait longer, but his job wasn't done. Paul knew his job wasn't done, and that's why he had to continue to live here on earth where there was suffering and where there was struggle. But John, we see, was able to fulfill his purpose, to live righteously, to to have unwavering faith with a clear conscience, with a pure heart, and in that, I think he was given one of the greatest gifts, that when his job was done, He got his eternal reward. Unwavering faith, it can give you more than just a sense of purpose, but it can give us peace in our innermost being that steers us away from emotional turmoil and emptiness. John was not trying to be confrontational, but sometimes righteousness forces us to confront sin. Tolerance is not happiness. Silence is not golden when it's faced with ungodliness. But taking a stand keeps our spirit clean. And a clean conscience conflicts with iniquity. Now that tells me we're going to have a lot of confliction, conflicting conversations and conflicting relationships with people in this world who have not yet... um, found Christ and are not yet living in that righteousness. That's a pattern from the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise her heel. Enmity means hatred or hostility and it, was, it is where the word enemy comes from. Unwavering faith knows that taking a stand for righteousness will not be a popular decision. Our commitment to our faith is based on the clean conscience of doing the right thing regardless of the fallout. So how can we confront sin in a way that ensures we have a clean conscience and are not offensive on purpose? The th- the three Hebrew young men refused to compromise their faith. You know who I'm talking about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, despite that they had no guarantee of deliverance. When we tell that story, we know the end. But when these three young men stood and said that they would not bow to a false god, they did not know that they were saved. But their unwavering faith gave them favor in the fire. And this is the greatest faith of all, a faith that says it does not matter if God answers, this is who I am, and this is how I am going to live. If God does not answer, then it will not change my course of action. Or maybe we should say, if God does not answer how I think he should answer, then it will not change my course of action. Faith based on an immediate answer or on a desire for the answer that we want, that's not faith at all. Faith based on trust, it doesn't need a response. It is unwavering faith, faith that finds favor because it does not require it. Faith without that expectation. We cannot live for God for the sole purpose of getting a favor or receiving a blessing. We're not entitled to anything from God. What if God doesn't get you a job? What if God doesn't heal your body? What if God does not answer? We will still not bow. We will still walk with God. We will still believe. We will still love. Unwavering faith is sincere faith. It's unwavering faith, it's faith with a pure heart, with a clean conscience, and it is sincere faith. Though John asked Jesus if he were the Messiah, what he was really asking was, if you're the Messiah, why am I in prison? Now at this point, faith becomes trust. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen but trust does not require evidence. Trust does not require substance. Trust does not have a conditional requirement. Trust is settled. This is the place where Job had to get to. He said in in chapter 3, verses 15 through 16 of the book of Job, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. He goes on to say in chapter 23, verses 8 through 10, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth not work, but I I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That is trust. That is sincere faith. That is unwavering faith. Proverbs chapter 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. It's not about understanding. It's not about knowing what's coming next. But it's about leaning on him. It's about trusting in him and in everything that we do, acknowledging him so that he can direct our paths. Finally, sincere faith comes from an honest heart. John the Baptist, he faced his greatest trial as he sat in jail. He heard the reports of the ministry of Jesus. John had paved the way for Jesus' ministry to prosper. John had been the forerunner. That was his purpose in life. He had fulfilled his mission by decreasing so that Jesus could increase. He he left the scene as soon as Jesus came on the scene so that the focus could be on Jesus. But then John, who was only human, Had that humanity kicked in as he sat on death row and he wondered, is Jesus really the one? And if so, why am I still in prison? The messengers who went to Jesus with questions from John, they were not rebuked, but instead Jesus pointed them to the miracles and then stated words never before assigned to any other. Jesus said, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet Than John the Baptist. The Lord honored John for his honest question. Unwavering faith is faith from an honest heart. Faith in a jail brings a savior. Unwavering faith whilst facing certain death brings the glory of God. And faith in the middle of uncertain times brings the certainty of God's hand. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this reminder that we have to have unwavering faith. I pray that we would have faith from a pure heart, from a clean conscience. Lord Jesus, help us shine a light into our lives so that we can see the things that need to be shifted, the things, oh God, that need to line up with your word. We want to be declarers of your truth. We want to live righteously so that we can point the way to you. We need you in that endeavor, God, and I pray that you would help us. Help us to be wise in our decisions. Help us to lean on you even when we don't understand. Help us to let you direct our path to have trust in you. Lord, thank you for the faith that you've given us and help us to continue to grow in it. In Jesus' name, amen.